This winter, Hulu and Disney Plus are better together in a brand new bundle. That's wicked. Wicked good. With titles like Disenchanted and Willow on Disney Plus. And Fleischman is in trouble. And welcome to Chippendales on Hulu. I love this place. All for just $9.99 a month. All of these and more now streaming. 18 and over only. Access content from each service separately. Offer valid for eligible subscribers only. Terms apply. See the DisneyBundle.com for details. Today is a new day. Today is the day that your voice will be heard. Today you will learn more about how to get out of your captivity and begin to step into who you were always meant to be. Welcome to your new life. My name is Dr. Ludi Green and I am the host of Ending Domestic Abuse. I'm a certified leadership in life coach. I help more than a thousand women regain their freedom and find financial independence from domestic abuse. In this podcast, you will hear from top experts in the world of domestic abuse, and you will hear from abused women who found a way out. Together, we'll offer you emotional support and practical ideas so you can free yourself from abuse at home now. Are you struggling with anxiety or depression? Do you feel ashamed talking about your struggles with others or seeking help? Although nearly one in five adults in the U.S. live with mental illness, 42% of those struggling go untreated because of a stigma and lack of access to resources and healthcare. This is a widespread problem with far-reaching impacts. Let me tell you what you already know. One of the leading causes of mental illness is family trauma. Those who experience abuse or witness loved ones impacted by abuse are at an extreme risk for developing mental health issues. After our break, our guest speaker will share with you her experience with mental health illness and domestic violence. We will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Ending Domestic Abuse, your pathway to the life you deserve. Our special guest today is Tanya Brown, the sister of Nicole Brown Sensen an experienced life coach and counselor specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy and domestic violence. Tanya, it is an honor to have you in our program today. We're so excited. I want to start with the most difficult part of your story, though, today. On June 12, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson, the wife of O.J. Simpson, famous football player and Ron Goldman, were brutally stabbed to death outside Nicole's home in Brentwood, California in what quickly became one of the most highly publicized trials of the century. Tanya, you were her sister, and you were in the midst of it all. Can we begin by you telling me more about your sister's life and the relationship you two had? First of all, thank you so much for having me, and I'm so grateful for anybody that's really taking the time to listen to, you know, the subject of domestic violence, child abuse, and mental illness, because, you know, it is still a stigma. So I really want to you know, really commend everybody taking the time to listen to what you and I are about to really, you know, experience and and talk about right now, because, you know, these are topics that 
up until about 26 years ago with domestic violence, we weren't talking about domestic violence, right? It was, we swept it under the rug and we dealt with it, right? And and dealing with it is totally different than coping with it. Dealing with it is like, okay, it's happening. I'll get to it later. Coping with it is like giving cold, hard strategies on how to get through this. And we've come a long way over the past 26 years talking about this subject. So first of all, you know, before I get into this, I just really want to say, you know, thank you for everybody listening, because what happened to my sister does not need to continue happening. What happened to my sister is a really real situation. You can be an OJ Simpson of the world, or you could be the next door plumber. It does not matter. Nicole's happen every seven seconds of every single day across this country. What makes our situation different is because it was publicized, because OJ was famous. But if Nicole wasn't married to a famous guy, would we be even talking about this today? I can't bring my sister back. This doesn't come like from overnight. This mindset, this belief, this empowerment, this encouragement to educate our communities on the dynamics of domestic violence and family trauma and how that can lead to mental illness is you know, something very near and dear to my heart. I can't bring her back. So shoot, we might as well like turn something negative into something really good, right? The hard thing about this situation for me personally is I'm the baby of the family, Ludi. And when you mm-hmm. met me, I was pretty much a baby. I think I was like in my late 20s when we originally yes, met. Yes, long time I'm ago, be, yes. And I'm going to be 51 in November. So we go way back. <laughs> Tempest right so quickly. My gosh. I know it sure does. And so what's really hard for me is that I was just getting to know my sister as a younger sister and she has an older sister and our lives kind of intersected at a time where a college sister, a college year sister, myself, I was at UC San Diego and I was just feeling comfortable. Like, Hey, Nick, you know what? I'm going to come up to LA. We're going to do lunch. Let's take the kids out. We're going to go down to the beach. We'll go to the farmer's market or whatever. I was just, our lives were just intersecting at the time that her life was taken from me. And that's my pain because you can talk to Denise, you can talk to Dominique, could talk to anybody, you know, in our family and each and every single one of us will have a different relationship with Nicole. But my relationship with her is her candle was blown out. Her candle didn't blow out. Her candle was blown out. And that was my pain. That was my grief. And, you know, but it is what it is. And you through, you know, over the past 26 years, I've heard stories. I've read her diaries. I've, we've listened to all these documentaries. And sadly, that's how I'm remembering my sisters through all the trauma. But what people don't realize that Nicole, before she met OJ, she was an aspiring photographer. So when Nicole was killed, media was always asking, Hey, can we get pictures of Nicole? Do you have any family photos with Nicole? And I kept saying no, because Nicole was always the one behind the camera capturing the moments. And so I have a different relationship with her. She was an aspiring photographer. She was an interior designer. My sister was the entertainer. And But what I really want to preface is that we live in a world today where we have the Beverly Hills Housewives. We have the Orange County Housewives. We have like all these housewife shows, right? 
26 years ago, this did not exist. So when I say my sister was an entertainer, my sister would like decorate her dining room table and we would just have pizza, you know, and we're just like in our jeans and our t-shirts or even in our pajamas, like just the media is not what it was. The Not only the media, but the lifestyle that the media portrays in today's world did not exist 26 years ago. So when people say, when they meet me, I go, you know, you know me. It's like I, I travel across the country. I've been to Europe and Australia. And we talk about the dynamics of domestic violence and mental illness and mental health. But people have always equated my family with the Kardashians, like Hollywood and L.A. And I'm like, I don't know what L.A. is. I never go to L.A. L.A. is two hours away from me. I never go. It's a different lifestyle. I used to go to L.A. when Nicole was alive. But, you know, she's not alive anymore. And it's just a different era. And I want people to really understand that my sister wasn't this highfalutin Hob snobby, you know, what we're seeing in today's culture. She was so not like that because what we see today did not exist 26 years ago. And to tell you the truth, if Nicole was still alive today, she would want to have absolutely nothing to do with what we see today. And let me also talk about this Vanity Fair, it was either Vanity Fair or Variety. They did an article on how did this whole coming into people's homes, like the, whatever you want to call it, coming into people's homes with cameras. Where did that all start? And I remember reading this article and it all started with our case because it really, before the Menendez brothers, this was like the case where cameras were brought into the courtroom because all of a sudden there's an American quote unquote hero being charged with two murders. So This whole thing that we are seeing today in the social media, people coming into the private lives, the housewives of Orange County, Atlanta, New Jersey, New York, all of that, it all started with our case. And I'm not saying this to brag about it, because really it's a shame that our case really set the precedent of kind of a destructive culture today. I firmly believe that. One thing is very important that you did have a relationship with your sister. And that was wonderful. Even though you were the baby sister, you still had some interaction with her and you had admiration for her for all what you're saying. So that is very, very nice to see and hear and, you know, that human part and knowing that you were there part of her life, no matter what, even though that you were the baby sister. Nicole, in 1992, it was New Year's Eve. Now, again, I had no idea my sister was being abused. I had no idea. And my sister had numerous times. I helped her move out of the Rockingham house into Gretna Green. I helped her move into Gretna from Gretna Green to Bundy. Like I was that person to help her. I never knew about her abuse. Never. Nobody ever shared it with me. I had no idea. I just thought that maybe this was just a divorce that went bad. But for some reason, I don't know. I was up at UCLA spending time with a college girlfriend of mine. You know, again, I was. 21, 22 at the time. She was at UCLA and my mom calls me and says, Hey, Tanya, Nicole needs help moving out of Rockingham tomorrow. And I was like, why? I had no idea. I knew that there was a divorce. I knew something was happening, but I didn't know that I would be 
blindsided, like you need to help your sister move out of Rockingham. My sister had so many opportunities to share her experience with me and she didn't. And that's okay because now I'm educated on it. And that's, you know, there's, there's a lot of shame and humility that, you know, that goes along with being a battered woman. I, and I understand that because I, it, it happened to me two years ago, but the girl that I remember, she helped me skip. She helped me, she taught me how to blow a bubble. Nicole made every occasion so special, no matter where we were, it could have been down on the beach and it would be like, Hey, we're going to do smash ball. We're just going to go play in the water. And that was Nicole. Nicole was very simple. She was, we grew up on the beach. One thing is when we're talking about domestic violence, I mean, many years ago, it was always a taboo. Nobody talked about it. Even in my own family situation, you know, with my mother, never, Mm -hmm. that was not discussed because people were ashamed about it. We feel like embarrassed to talk about. So they will keep it from the family members as well. So what what was the first thing that came to your mind when you heard about the death of your sister? The very first thing was Nicole was taken down by a drive-by shooting. Because back in the early, late 80s, early 90s, drive-by shootings were becoming, and I hate to say it like this, the fad of Los Angeles. And I honestly thought it was a drive-by shooting. I had no idea what domestic violence was. I had no idea of the relationship that Nicole and OJ had. I had no idea about, you know, their tumultuous relationship. I had no idea. So my initial reaction was my sister was killed in a drive-by shooting. I even remember having a conversation with my best friend at the time, Missy Kaplan. And I said, Missy, I said, turn on the news. She goes, it's already on. She was already at work. And she goes, what happened? And I go, Missy, it's a drive-by shooting. You know, again, I'm the baby of the family. Now, everything fast forward 20 something years ago, not even 26 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, where now my sister and my family, you know, I've had these conversations with people where we were protecting you. I was always the baby sister that everybody wanted to protect because I'm the empath in the family. I'm the sibling that takes people on, but I leave you at home right? I'll take you on so I can help you. Then I leave you at the front door. It doesn't mean I don't care about you. It's just, I've got my own boundaries to to consider. But my family and the world, we both had two different, all of us had different experiences. Me, I thought it was a drive-by shooting. Would you be willing today to share an entry of Nicole's journal? Yeah. I thought this one was really poignant because this one is dated May 22nd, 1994. And she was murdered June 12th, 1994. This is her journal entry. May 22nd, 1994, we've officially split. I told OJ we're going back to every other weekend. This had everything to do with the child custody case. June 3rd, OJ came to pick up the kids at 8.30 p.m. They wanted to stay home because I let them organize sleepovers at the last minute. Thought daddy wasn't coming. Told OJ I dropped them off first thing in the a.m. He said, okay, then dot, 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 quote, you hung up on me last night, comma, you're going to pay for this B, comma, you're holding money from the IRS, comma, you're going to jail, you effing C word, period. You think you can do any effing thing you want, comma, 
you've got it coming, comma. I've already talked to my lawyers about this B word. They'll get you for tax evasion B, I'll see to it, period. You're not going to have an effing dime left B word. This was on June 3rd, June 12th. He killed my sister. It's horrendous. Yeah, I mean, that's really clear. And, and the way he communicated to her, I mean, the words being used, it's it so ironic? sad. It's, it's so but, sad, so ironic and sad. And But isn't it ironic that abusive people will always go to money because the money is the one thing that they can control. And that's why women don't want to leave because it's like, oh my God, where am I going to go? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my sister, it's, she always had her family. My sister, it's not like she didn't have anywhere to go, you know, but she, as well as all the other battered women out there, they love the people that they marry. And unless you're educated on domestic violence, that sounds really insane. But women who marry their abusive partners actually fell in love with their abusive partners. And we can't judge them. Economic abuse is very prevalent. And that's a way that abusers control spouses and keep them with them and they will not let them do anything and the women think that they cannot function anymore because they are depending on the men who they are basically taking care of them and the children so this was one of the cases as was my mother's as well would you tell us a little bit more about the impact that nicole's struggles with abuse had on your life and your extended family because you mentioned about your sister and other members of your family who they knew about it so how does this impact in their lives? What people don't understand is that domestic violence does not only solely affect the victim. It affects the entire community. It affects her children or his children. It crosses both genders. But, you know, statistics do show that domestic violence is predominantly, you know, inflicted upon the woman than it is the men. But everybody's affected, you know, and then you start having this conversation with yourself. Well, the what if conversation, what if, had I known if I had seen, well, you don't know what you don't know. And I'm able to share this 26 years later. Do not. And I, you know, I I don't want to use this word flippantly because I know it could be a trigger for people, but I don't want people to beat themselves up for not knowing what they don't know. Hence the reason why I do the work I do. And hence the reason why we're having this podcast. I don't want people to get down on themselves, beat themselves up for not knowing what they didn't know. I didn't know my sister was going through abuse, even though in 1992, we were at Spago's on New Year's Eve. My sister sits me down. We're at a dinner, right? I mean, everybody's there at Spago's and Beverly Hills. Everybody's there. And my sister says, hey, Tanya, come to the bathroom with me. And I was like, okay. I don't need to go to the bathroom, but I'll go with you. I guess it's what women do together. And she sat down in a chair at Spago's and up in the restroom. And she said to me flat out, now again, I'm 22, 21, 22 years old. She said, I'm asking for a divorce tonight. Out of the blue. And I had no idea that there were any problems. I had no idea at all. And Maybe this is just like the empath and the counselor and the psychologist in me, even though I'm not a psychologist, but it's, you know, that's what I went to school for. The first thing out of my mouth, I said, Nick, I go, do you love your kids? And she goes, more than I love my own life. And I said, then you're making the right decision. 
again, not knowing her history, somehow, some way, God above gave me those words. I said, then you're making the right decision because kids do not understand. They don't have the cognitive ability to reason and what's logic and what's not logic, but they feel. And that's how kids understand is through feelings. And I said, Nick, if you're not happy, your kids are going to feel it. And they're going to know when mom and dad aren't happy. They're going to get that. And she said, okay, so am I making the right decision? And I go, I would say yes, because if you're unhappy, you're just going to raise kids in a very unhappy home. And surely enough, it was that night that she ended up asking OJ for a divorce. And this is my own personal opinion. And, you know, I will sign a waiver on this because so many times when I talk to women in domestic violence relationships and marriages, they always say I'm staying because of the kids. It is the biggest mistake to stay for the kids because what you're doing is raising a batterer or you're raising a victim. If you know what you're going through is violent and abusive, you just don't pick up and leave like my sister left, Ludie. She did everything. Nicole (laughs) did everything wrong. She picked up, she left, she moved a mile away. No, if you are listening to this, if you even have a feeling, a gut instinct that this could be you, you got to do it safely. That's where connecting with Ludie, connecting with me and the people that we know so you can remain anonymous and we can get you the help that you need. Because if you just pick up and leave, that's when murder happens. Thank you for sharing your story with us. In a moment after our break, we will have a discussion on mental health with Tanya Brown. We will be right back after this short break. Witnessing or dealing with trauma personally or toward a loved one lead to lasting mental health struggles. Many people experiencing mental illness or mental breakdowns feel shame, feel pressure to hide their symptoms, and do not seek help. As someone who has spoken and written openly about her struggles with mental illness and suicidal thoughts, Tanya, I have a question for you. Would you mind sharing advice for overcoming the stigma around mental health? I think what we need to do is really distinguish the difference between what is mental health and what is mental illness. They're two different things. And mental illness is what is. They're in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM-4, DSM-5. Those are mental illnesses. Mental health is, I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to have a healthy waking routine. I'm going to have a healthy sleeping routine. I'm going to engage in healthy activities. I'm going to practice self-care. That's mental health. Why I'm so passionate about helping people understand that differentiation is, in 2006, I was a keynote speaker at the World health conference. And the title was the 2006 World Conference to Promote Mental Health and Prevent Mental Illness. And when I was a keynote there, it was like a four-day conference, I believe. And there was not one person there engaging in any activity that promoted mental health. Everything was talked about mental illness. So it was talking about research, 
statistics, what's bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. What people don't understand, mild depression, anxiety, self-doubt, worrisome, all of that stuff is all mental illness as well. So I kind of wanted to change, you know, the definitions of what's mental health and what's mental illness. Because when you say mental illness, nobody, everybody's kind of like, well, I don't have schizophrenia. I don't have bipolar disorder. And in my head, I'm like, so what if you do? Who cares? Nobody needs to know. But let's promote mental health so then you can sustain a healthy lifestyle and maintain that and, you know, engage in a healthy life while taking medication. I'm all for medication because if you battle with schizophrenia, you need to take it. If you battle with bipolar disorder, one, two, you need to take it. You battle with depression, maybe you need to take it. I was on antidepressants for a very short time, but then I realized, okay, there are coping strategies that I can do because my depression was very situational. I had a lot of family trauma, like you had talked about early on, Moody. You don't know what you're predisposed to. That's the scary thing with our brain. That's the powerful element of our brain. We do not know what we are predisposed to. And so in 1994, you know, I know I'm kind of everywhere right now because I want to fit everything in. In 2004, I attempted a suicide 10 years after Nicole's murder. And the trigger was the cancellation of my wedding four days before. And my face started dropping. My lips started turning blue when the cancellation happened. My mom was slapping me across the face. She's like, oh my God, my kid's going to have a stroke. My face, like everything was turning purple and everything was shutting down in my entire body. And I remember my mom saying, she goes, Tanya, why are you allowing this to happen over a relationship? I had such self-awareness that I said, mom, this is not a relationship-based issue right now. This is something bigger. I don't know what this is. For one entire month, I went into full destruction mode, self-destruction. I was popping pills because again, in 2004, it's not like we didn't have it. We weren't talking about meditation. We weren't talking about mindfulness. We weren't talking about self-care back in 2004. We are now, but in 2004, it was like, okay, go to a psychiatrist, get on some anti-anxiety pill and, you know, get better. And well, the doctor gave me medication, a Klonopin. I wasn't taking it as described because I was horribly angry, horribly depressed, obviously horribly anxious and kept popping my pills, my red wine. And, and I'll never forget on October 9th, I snapped. We had a family friend of ours over. His name's Irwin. And I love the guy to death. I've known him since I was like five years old. He's a friend of Denise's back in the New York days. And he said something that just triggered me. And Ludie, I'm big. I'm 5'11". My dad was 5'7". My mom's 5'5". Like, I'm a big girl. And when Erwin said what he said, I got up. I almost hit my dad. I blamed my mom and my dad for Nicole's murder. I blew out of the living room. And on my way out of the living room, Denise grabbed me by the shoulders and said, you need coping skills. 
Now, keep in mind, Denise has always been worldly. She took off when she was 16, 17 years old to become a model in Italy, Milan, under the Ford Modeling Agency. So Denise has always been exposed to the outside. Me, I was always sheltered, very sheltered. So I'm like, what the hell are coping skills? I had no idea what that was, but I was allowing pain to come in and I had no idea how to cope with it. I knew how to deal with it. Kind of like what I said earlier, dealing and coping are two different strategies. And she said, you need coping skills. And I'm like, you know, I mean, there were expletives flying and to the point where the first chapter of my book, Finding Peace Amid the Chaos, the first chapter is called And the Oscar Goes Too, because it was highly dynamic. And I just remember going to my room and I was sitting in front of Nicole's cabinet that was in my room. And I saw the bottle of Klonopin in the left side of the cabinet and the bottle of red wine on the right side of the cabinet. And I just was like, I'm done. I'm tapped out. I'm done. And mm-hmm. I think this is a really important message, especially what, or not even especially, regardless if you're a victim or a survivor of domestic violence. Maybe you had something else that happened where you find yourself in such a deep, dark depression where you feel like there's no way out. I've been that girl. I've been that girl two times. So in 2004, I grabbed the bottle of Klonopin, poured it in my left hand, and I was like, okay, well, I need something to down that with. And I saw the bottle of red wine, my baby at the time, and I was just like ready to throw the pills in my mouth and down it with the red wine. And my sister Dominique came in and said, what the heck are you doing? And I said to her, I go, Minnie, that's what we call her. I said, Min? I go, take me, get me out of here before I hurt myself or someone around me. So I understand rage. Rage to where I could do something that Simpson did? Absolutely not. But I understand rage to the point where you could cause so much destruction that if you were around people that you really cared about, perhaps you would never be able to be in touch with them again because it was so destructive. And I just said, Min, get me out of here. And she took me out and I went to my girlfriend's house. And the next morning she called me up and she said, okay, Tanya, are you ready? And I said, yep, where are we going? (laughs) And she said, well, South Coast Medical in Laguna Beach has a bed ready for you. And I said, I'm ready. But see, Ludi, what I also want to really address here is that it was not just Nicole, okay? I had so much unresolved grief, so much unresolved anxiety and stress from when I was a kid. I had to bury six friends of mine in high school. And back in the 80s, we didn't have the first responders that we have today. Mm -hmm. We had our counselors were like, where do you want to go to college after Dana Hills High School? I'm like, I don't know, the beach, (laughs) right? Like, we didn't have trauma therapists. No. When my trauma began. So it wasn't just Nicole. It was a culmination, the combination of everything, of all the losses that I endured in high school. My best friend, Harissa, out of high school. My friend, Troy, you know, in 2000. These are stories that, you know, due to the sake of time, I didn't go through. But they were really, really significant chapters. And then Nicole happened. So it's like, if we do not address our unresolved pain, It doesn't need to be a public murder. It doesn't even need to be a murder. It could be a loss of a job, a loss of a boyfriend, a girlfriend, your dog, your cat, whatever that is. 
you got to talk about what you're going through, that pain, as you are going through it. Because if you don't, it will bite you in the butt. It not only happened to me, I work in the era of the industry of drug and alcohol treatment, and the common denominator is unresolved grief, unresolved trauma. So when we talk about trauma with Nicole, it affects the entire community. Nicole's case, it affected the entire globe. Mm -hmm. It affected everybody. So I know I'm not the only Tanya, and I know Nicole's not the only Nicole. So whatever it is that you're going through, please, you've got to reach out to a lifeline, whether it's through Ludi and the podcast, whether it's through me, if I can't help you, I'm going to find somebody who can, because my goal in life is not to have somebody go through what I went through. And Ludi, I am a survivor of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. My ex-boyfriend, Scott Walker, proudly, I will throw it out there. His son, mentally ill, drug and alcohol addicted. I did everything I could to get his kid, Greg, help. I did everything I could. Like, let's get him into therapy. Let's get him into psychiatry. Let's get him off drugs and alcohol. Like, let's do this thing. But for five months, this kid tortured me. He was 26 years old at the time. He's 28 or 29 now. For six months. My mom and I, we were just talking about it last night. She goes, Tanya, I could not be around you at that time. So I'm not only talking from an indirect experience with domestic violence, I am talking about coming from a girl, a woman who was in a relationship trying to fix somebody who is not ready to be fixed. You don't know how grateful I am that you're sharing your story and your experience, not only the effects that happened to the family and to you, and as well from your previous experiences yourself of losing friends and the death of your sister and all that. But also, you know, what's very important that you mentioned about the difference between mental illness and mental health. Thank God right now in 2020, people can really go to a psychologist, can go to a psychiatrist, can talk with a counselor, can go and do yoga, can do transcendental meditation, right? you know, and can help themselves and be in a much better space in the years where your poor sister died. And where you were going through all that and you couldn't take care of yourself. So, you know, I'm grateful for this. And then now we're going to go to the next part of of the interview. So if you want to hear more about Tanya's journey and benefit more from self-help advice, Tanya had written a few books. And one of them is The Seven Characters of Abuse, Domestic Violence, Where It Starts and Where It Can End. And I highly recommend this book to all our listeners And you will have the information as well in my website, ludigreen.com. And I will have also a page referencing their information on this particular book. So continue with our program. Tanya, I have a couple of questions from our listeners. Of course. One is coming from, her name is Dana. She's from Washington, D.C. She asks, I'm struggling with my marriage. I'm also a mother of four, currently suffering with serious anxiety attacks on a regular basis. I do not want to see a doctor as I do not believe in medication. Would you advise me an alternative way on how to address this problem? Absolutely. And I will always respect people because there are, you know, that population of people who don't believe in medication. And I will always respect that. And the best anti-anxiety drug to man is breath work. So if you're battling with anxiety, 
really educate yourself on breath work. Get yourself with all the apps and everything being done, everything like all the Zoom calls that are out there right now. Your best anti-anxiety drug is breath work. Because what breath work does, it brings you into the present. It helps you focus on the breath in the present moment. In the world of addiction and recovery, we call it future tripping. Okay. I'm not in recovery. It's just I work in the world of recovery, but we call it future tripping. If you're worried about what's going to happen two minutes, two seconds, two hours, two days, two weeks, two months, two years from now, you're losing out on the what is right now. So breath work is, is so essential because if you can wake up, make your bed, that's the first and foremost, like establish like a really good waking routine and a really strong going to bed routine. Because when you wake up with intention, And if you wake up with a really strong, you know, some people will read a devotional, some people will do meditation, whatever that is for you. There are so many alternative ways. I'm just kind of throwing things out to Dana right now. Breath work, starting the day off with intention, maybe reading a devotional, giving gratitude, or maybe setting three intentions that you set out to, you know, accomplish in the day. And if you're battling with the anxiety and the depression, like, In that moment, like it could be at two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, I always do a squirrel, okay? Like squirrel, you need a diversion. And the best diversion is whether you're at work, whether you're at home, our lives are very different right now. So, and I don't know everybody's lifestyle, but if you can just maybe open up the blinds, open up the window, or if you have a balcony, just lean up against the railing or look outside the window and just take deep breaths. And it's really amazing when you can slow the brain down, you see everything around you. But when we're in the chaos and we're engaged in it and we give into it and we don't see the trees, we don't see the birds, we don't see, you know, the squirrels, we don't see that because our brains are so wired, so high wired. So Dana, my my suggestion is one, you can always reach out to me, okay, because I know our time is limited here. I have so many things that I can print out and send to you. And I know there's so many other Danas out there listening, but I think the best practice really is to wake up with intention of not rolling out of bed and answering your text phone, your text messages, your email, like waking up slowly, doing your breath work giving intention to the day. And then if you battle with anxiety and depression and maybe suicidal ideations, that's when you reach out to your bestie. That's when you reach out to your support. I have my support network. I call Nikki, I call Elizabeth, and I call Laura. Those are my three girls that I call whenever I'm going through a hard time. This is a great answer to the question. Listen, I have another one. There's another question coming from Florida, from Elaine. She says, I'm a 17-year-old and I live with my parents. My mother is abused by my dad. All I hear and see are fights constantly. I can't sleep well at night, worrying about my mother and myself. I feel really blue often. Do you have any advice for my situation? I do. So first and foremost, I'm going to put on two different hats here. I'm, I'm using the domestic violence hat, okay? And then I'm going to use the mental health hat. The domestic violence hat, I want to ask her, Has anybody ever anonymously 
done a welfare check on mom? Has anybody ever anonymously called the cops on this guy? So we can do that even as children. We can do that as friends. We can do that. We can put out a call, totally anonymous. Just make sure it's not a phone number that's coming from your phone, but totally anonymous. And just say, hey, you know what? I have a feeling there's something going on next door. I have a feeling my friend's going through something. Well, you just, you know, maybe do a quick checkup. Just, but then this is where, you know, you kind of got to play into the character where I had nothing to do with it. At least she'll be documenting something, right? At least there's a beginning of a paperwork trail. Because right now, from what I'm hearing, nobody knows what's going on in that home. So I would say my advice personally, do not hold me accountable, but personally, just from going through this myself and through, you know, with other friends of mine and and their children, I would say go to somebody that you trust, totally anonymous, Okay, make that call so a paper trail can be established. Okay, so then that's protecting your mom. That's creating a paper trail because when, not if, because if something is going to happen, it's not an if question. When is something going to happen? That's why we need to create that paper strategy. Now, for you to help yourself create that, You've got to create, and I know you're 17 and it, and it sucks. It's not like you're old enough to go out and get your apartment and escape and do it, and it sucks. But your brain is so, so, so powerful. And you've got to create your little happy place. When I was going through my trauma with my ex and, and his son, Greg, which warranted a five-year restraining order, by the way, my happy place I would meditate and I would go to Alaska and I was raised in California. Go figure. I have no idea. But for some reason, like Alaska is my happy place. It's peaceful. It's calm. I look at the the mountains. So you have to create visually like a guided imagery of what is your happy place. Because when stuff happens, when the chaos happens, when violence happens, when You hear the screams when you hear stuff happening, okay? You can call your confidant, whoever person that is that you trusted, and you can also go within and just go, okay, what's my happy place? Is it at the beach? Is it in the mountains? Is it at a lake? And I don't care if you live in a studio apartment with six kids and six siblings, your brain can control so much of what you're going through. So you can sit in a corner, close your eyes, and visualize your happy place. It's not going to happen overnight. Believe me, it's not. It is definitely a skill that needs to be practiced. But I know it works because I did it. Since you're so young, I would find that one person that you really, really trust, really trust, and share with them. And start doing welfare and, and, and have them anonymously. You need to have somebody anonymously do a welfare check on your mom. Tanya, thank you for all the advice you provided to these listeners. I mean, they all are excited and you have amazing advice, amazing experience. And we're grateful to have you in our program today. So if you would like to learn more about Tanya Brown, please go to our website and see today's program at ludigreen.com. 
That wraps up our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to Ending Domestic Abuse. For our listeners, we need you to help spread awareness of this podcast. This is the way that we're combating domestic violence and child abuse, one woman at a time, one child at a time. If you have any questions or need help for an abusive relationship, don't delay. We want to hear from you now. Send us an email through our website at ludigreen.com. That's ludigreen.com. Or you can call our hotline at 202-643-2327. That's 202-643-2327. Thank you for listening to Ending Domestic Abuse. On our next episode, our special guest is Dr. Laurie Sutton, a psychiatrist and retired military officer who served as a brigadier general in the United States Army. Sutton served for over 20 years and was awarded a bronze star. She was the Army's highest-ranking psychiatrist. See you at our next show. In the meantime, be safe and blessings. <laughs>